Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In economic news this week, we learned that inflation has crept up to 7.5%, the highest it has been in 40 years. Prices of food, energy, and used cars are all up, and in practical terms, the average U.S. household is spending an additional $276 a month. The middle class also continues to be hit harder than other groups. And inflation is even coming at you in another place where you might not expect it, your car insurance. Many insurers are raising their rates by 6 to 8%, and in extreme cases, they're asking for double-digit increases. For more on how much inflation is costing you, we'll speak to Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So if you take the goods and services that the average family spends on in a month, and you take that under 2% inflation, which is like, you know, about where it would be in normal times, and then compare that with how much they're spending on those same goods and services when it's 7.5%, and that all adds up to... 276 bucks, which is if inflation keeps on at the current rate, like that adds up to a, some real money there really fast. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's the burden on households. And, you know, it's considerable. And so where are we seeing a lot of these prices increase? Used car prices continue to drive up overall inflation. Food prices are going up. Energy prices are going up. Those are some of the key points where everybody's getting hit. Yeah, that's right. You know, there, there are a couple themes here. Food prices, those are being affected by a lot of the same supply dislocations that you're seeing with goods. And, you know, the goods story, we, we've all heard about the chips, the chip shortage that is making cars so scarce that yeah. you have used car prices up 41% in January. So that's affecting all kinds of things like living room furniture, 20% increase in January. Major appliances, 10%. Anything that has to travel long distance, made in a factory, go maybe over the ocean and then like get unloaded to port, loaded into a truck or a train. Like it's just the costs are piling up throughout the supply chain. And that's really filtering through to customers in a way that like we haven't experienced as, you know, you noted it at the top in decades. Yeah. When we're talking about the story of inflation, how do we balance that with what's going on in the economy right now? Because the economy is growing very fast. Obviously, we're coming down from the lows, right, of the pandemic. So we're expanding very fast. Wages are going up for some, not everybody, but a lot of people. And so how does that balance out with this story of inflation? Yeah, that's a great way of framing it because it is, you know, this inflation news is genuinely pretty scary, but it's offset by the main cause is that people are spending a lot. That is kind of wages are growing a lot, so they're able to spend. And, you know, of course, also there were you know, fiscal stimulus throughout the last two years has helped a lot, you know, buffer people's savings. But, you know, these are kind of people are financially healthy in a way they haven't been in, you know, since the financial crisis on average. And the economy is booming and grew faster last year than it had since, you know, 1984, I think. So, you know, you have this like actually pretty good story that has a really big downside to it, which is prices are yeah. through the roof. Yeah, it, it sucks because uh, you know, the more money that we're making and saving is just being sucked away by the rates of inflation that are going on right now. 
this is also squeezing different groups, uh, you know, demographic groups differently. There was a study done by Wells Fargo that you noted in your article, breaking down how different groups are going through this. The middle class households obviously always kind of take the short end of the stick, but they're being squeezed harder than other groups. And, and there's a bunch of other demographic data we learned through that study from Wells Fargo. That study did a good job of kind of breaking out like how this pain from inflation is distributed across different demographic groups. And I should say that the 276 bucks a month, like that figure came from uh, Moody's Analytics. So this Wells Fargo study, you know, kind of slices things a little bit at a finer grain. And you get some kind of interesting differences there. Now, a lot of these differences have to do with like how much of your spending basket is typically devoted to cars and like buying a new car, buying a used car and gasoline. So of the major races and ethnicities, Hispanics and Latinos have a pretty considerably higher, are experiencing a higher inflation burden because their spending baskets skew a little more in that direction. Similarly, middle class people have that same kind of bias. So their inflation's weighing harder on them, relatively speaking. Yeah, the transportation costs, especially gasoline, we've seen. I live in California. The gas prices are out of control, you know, so I definitely can feel some of that going on. Yeah, higher earning households, they spend a lot more money on dining out, recreation, and education, all those things that haven't been hit the same way by inflation. Yeah, that's right. Their spending basket, you know, they people in the upper income group tend to have more children on average. So, you know, education is a big piece of that. And that's like gone up, you know, somewhere around 2% or something like that. And actually, I hear from a lot of seniors who are struggling a lot. So, you know, again, this is all averages. Individuals have totally different stories. But because they have a much, much, much bigger share of their spending going towards healthcare and healthcare services have, you know, they've gone up, but somewhere around the 2% region, like that is keeping the lid on their inflation experience in a way that it's not for the younger folks who who are paying more of their budget, more of their budget's going towards right. other things, like notably the transportation stuff. Yeah, it's such a delicate balance right now with the economy, as we've been talking about, right? The you know wages and good stuff happening for the economy that's just being bogged down by inflation is so tough on a lot of people. And for the administration, you know, I know they're trying to get things under control, but it's tough and we haven't really seen it come down. So that's kind of going to be the ongoing story for months, it seems like, until things get under control. So we'll keep monitoring all of that. Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. The tensions in Ukraine continue this week also, as Russia has begun conducting military drills on the Ukraine border, worrying Western officials that they are readying for an invasion. In the meantime, President Biden has approved a plan to help Americans flee Ukraine if Russia does invade. Biden has warned Americans in the area to get out because things could go crazy quickly. And while the current situation in Ukraine is different from Afghanistan, officials can't help but have that debacle in the back of their heads. For more on the plan to evacuate Americans, we'll speak to Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. What you're seeing is the U.S. planning for a possible influx of Americans coming out of Ukraine into Poland in the event of a Russian invasion into the country. Specifically, I think there are concerns about a movement into the capital. And so the U.S. military now is setting up tents and other supply routes for those Americans who are coming through 
to Poland. I'm glad you pointed out the differences because they are stark. One of them is that the president has said that U.S. forces will not enter Ukraine, whereas in Afghanistan, they they had been there for 20 years. The other difference is where in Afghanistan, there were very limited routes out short of air. There are numerous land routes by rail, by road that Americans can leave from. The similarity, I think, is that, you know, Afghanistan was just six months ago, and the evacuation, I think, the images of that evacuation are really seared in people's minds. And many of the military commanders who'd be involved in helping Americans out of Ukraine were instrumental in the U.S. effort in Afghanistan. And so I think for a lot of people in the military, when they were looking at the sort of lessons learned, they thought it would be applied to future generals and future conflicts, not that they would be in a situation where they would have to apply those lessons a few months later. Right away, exactly. So we got about 1,700 troops being deployed to Poland. And you made that uh, that point, right? None of them are allowed to go into Ukraine, do any action in there. I'm sure that would increase the tensions even more. So they're directed to stay out of there. And we have about 30,000 Americans that are in Ukraine. So again, a lot of people that if things start to go downhill will quickly need to be evacuated out there. And the president said himself when he asked, when he was asked about it, he said, if I have people there, I would be getting out. Look, that's why what I've asked is American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. That's right. You know, what's interesting about that 30,000 numbers, there's only 7,000 that have registered with the State Department. So in terms of where people are, they only know about where a quarter or a fifth of those Americans are. So part of the challenge would be finding Americans. And because there are various routes to get out, they might go from in different ways at different times and have different needs. And so one of the challenges in sort of preparing for such a mission is not only um, does the U.S. not know what Russia's intentions are or the timing of it or the scale of it, but how many Americans and the kinds of needs that they would have in the event of a Russian invasion into Ukraine. As I mentioned, just shades of Afghanistan. The situations are, are different, but it really illustrates the delicate balance of diplomacy right now. You know, if people start evacuating early from Ukraine, it could signal to Russia that, you know, there's no more diplomacy, everything's going haywire anyways, why not just go in? And, you know, so it's that delicate balance that really needs to be played here. And, and again, we don't want to be stuck in a situation where people are stuck if fighting starts. That's such a great point. And I think it's the most important comparison between Afghanistan and Ukraine, that some in the U.S. government are reticent to make moves towards a possible evacuation or urging Americans to leave too aggressively because they're afraid that it signals to Russia that the U.S. believes diplomacy is dead or that it becomes a point that Russia can point to and say, look, Ukraine, even your partners are worried and don't think that diplomacy is a solution. On the other hand, if one doesn't plan ahead, then you have a situation where people are in a really tight and complicated situation, a, a harried situation in some cases, and that there are second and third order effects for a lack of planning. So how do you delicately plan for something that could be very complex without signaling something other than the intended message, which is that the safety of American citizens living in Ukraine is paramount to the U.S. government, all while it is pushing for a diplomatic solution to the crisis on Ukraine's border. You mentioned it earlier, uh, at least two of the generals that played a major role in the Afghanistan evacuation effort are part of the planning here, most notably Army Major General Donahue, who 
was the last American to step on a military jet leaving Afghanistan. I think everybody knows that picture of him right. being the last one out. Um, so he's leading the troops in Poland specifically. Uh, you yeah. know, as you mentioned, nobody thought they'd have to do it again so quickly. But here we are again with some of the same players. Well, what's interesting is General Donahue was one of the last ones out of Afghanistan. He's one of the first ones into Poland. He arrived last Saturday. And Afghanistan, I mean, he wasn't just there, but he was really leading operations at Hamid Karzai International Airport and is now part of the operations in Poland to prepare for a possible evacuation of Americans. And so in Afghanistan, he was instrumental to the U.S. operations there, had to make adjustments as the growing number of civilians who were increasingly desperate sought to leave one available runway out of Kabul. And so this is someone who will be intimately aware of some of the challenges of, a, of an evacuation, but also face very different circumstances in terms of the kind of threat, whereas in Afghanistan, there was the Taliban and insurgency outside the doors of the evacuation zone. In this case, it would be a very powerful and large conventional force that would be between the U.S. and its potential efforts to get Americans out. Well, we're hoping, obviously, that nothing escalates and there is no fighting, but hopefully the plan is sound to evacuate the Americans that we need to if the situation arises. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we're also seeing an attitude shift when it comes to the pandemic, specifically when it comes to mask mandates. Mask mandates are beginning to fall in states across the country, and particularly when it comes to schools. Democratic governors in Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, and Oregon are lifting statewide rules, leaving the final say to school districts on how to proceed. California is another big state that's lifting their mandate. For more on all this, we'll speak to Laura Meckler, national education writer at The Washington Post. Well, we've seen big divides in the country over this issue, mostly this school year. So, you know, last school year, the big fight was, do we open schools or not? But pretty much all the schools that were open had masks. Everybody was wearing masks. But when we saw the beginning of this school year back in August, we saw right from the get-go that there was a big, big fight over whether kids should have to wear masks or not. And what we had was we had 10 or 12 Democratic-led states that were requiring it statewide. And then you had a close to an equal number of Republican states that were trying to essentially ban mask mandates, going the other direction, saying school districts are not allowed to require mask mandates. And then in the middle, a bunch of states that left it up to the districts. So, you know, it's always that all that pattern that we right. saw as part of what we've seen throughout this entire pandemic, right? Which is like Democrats in favor of more restrictions, more safety measures, Republicans less, more sort of normalcy. Well, what we saw this week was Democrats, as you said, in those four states, and I think there will be more to come, saying, you know, we're lifting these statewide rules. It's up to you districts. We don't have the same kind of emergency that we had before. You get to decide, do you want to require masks or not? And um, we'll see again what those districts decide. But clearly, some of those districts are going to decide that they don't want to require them. Right. And a big part of this conversation throughout the whole thing was this fight between you know, a lot of parents that said that, you know, it was too much for their kids. They didn't want them to have to do it. And then teachers unions, teacher unions played a huge part in this conversation. And they still do where, you know, they're saying we're glad we're seeing case rates go down, but we want to approach this very cautiously. Yeah, teachers unions have definitely been on the side of caution throughout this entire conversation. 
their view is, okay, yes, we do need an off-ramp from this masking, but it should be based on metrics, it should be based on data, it shouldn't be based on politics. So whether these decisions today are being based on politics or on data, I guess depends on who you ask. It clearly is in the interest of these Democratic governors politically to not be seen as essentially, you know, being overly restrictive. But yeah, so the teachers unions, though, are not full-fledged like you know, hair on fire over this, but they, which they have been at times, yeah. and they're, they're a little more like on the kind of like, well, we should be moving more slowly. I think that a lot of them are, are looking for more guidance from the CDC, which I think the CDC currently still says, you know, masks is, uh, helps protect people uh, and keep transmission rates low. So they're, they're still looking for more guidance, even beyond what yeah. governors are saying. Well, that's the thing that's so interesting about this, right, is that like these governors are moving ahead even without the CDC. Like the CDC rules still say that universal masking is an important, maybe the most important feature next to vaccines of COVID protection in schools. So they are definitely all in still on, on masking. And yet we see these states moving forward and saying, you know what, it's not a requirement. Districts, you do what you want to do. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about some uh, political motivations and whatnot to California, a state that I live in. We just kind of went through this whole thing at at a football stadium with Governor Gavin Newsom and even L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti were seen taking pictures without their masks. You know, it was kind of an open air thing. But still, you know, the rules, it seemed like they were skirting the rules. And then very quickly, all of a sudden we started saying, well, we're going to take away the indoor mask mandate. You know, so there there could be a lot of political motivations, but we are seeing case rates drop, you know, so the numbers are trending in the right way. But as we've been talking about, right, a lot of caution going throughout all of it. What are we seeing as far as timelines then with these four states? When are they starting to lift their mandates? So in Connecticut, I believe it will be at the end of this month, the end of February. Um, The other states are sort of throughout March. So by the end of March, um, we'll see a lot of places in, in this country that haven't had the ability to make this decision, having that responsibility now to make the call. So. And I think that this links up a little bit with the CDC, right? Like it would be useful for these districts trying to suddenly now they've got to make this decision if they had a little more guidance. Yeah. And that's that's been one of the big pitfalls throughout the entire pandemic. The overarching guidance has not always been there. It's always been very fluid to the frustration of a lot of people. And especially with these school districts trying to make that right decision, you know, they're going to err on the side of caution mostly and say, let's keep these mass mandates. So they still have the final say, despite these governors taking away the mandates. For sure. But I think we will see districts that lift it also. And the thing is, then, of course, then the decision gets passed on to the parents and the students. And I think what we've seen in a lot of places where masks are not required, really nobody, very few people really wear them. The the pressure quickly becomes and the preferences quickly become to not wearing masks. So if you don't require them, don't just assume, well, it'll be a mix, half and half. Most people still will. Just a few won't. Like, I think in a lot of places, I talked to a teacher in Utah where the districts are not allowed to have mass mandates and they do not have one and she said that like no one wears a mask because she does but like nobody else yeah well as we said that's the shift that's where we're trending we'll see how it all plays out laura meckler national education writer at the washington post thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.